Good evening, everyone. Um, I've had to do a few chairing stints for uncles in the past, so it's a bit strange to actually be allowed to say Uncle Tony tonight. So can I just um, reiterate what Tony has said um, and extend my welcome to all of you this evening? It's a real privilege for me to be able to open up this book of Titus found near the end of the New Testament. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What sort of picture comes to our minds when we hear this description? Maybe we imagine a group of people who are just simply beyond help. Well, we read this in Titus chapter 1, and it describes the Cretan people. It's a quote from one of their own prophets, maybe someone we would describe as a social commentator today. And it forms the basis of Paul's writings in this book. Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, but like First and Second Timothy, it's written to one of his fellow workers in the faith rather than to a church itself. Paul had completed a recent journey to Crete where he had preached and established churches in the region. The gospel had reached the island, but Paul knew there was still much to be done. The people were now believers, but what now? there was still a great deal required in the lives of those who had come to faith. Titus was left behind in Crete and given the authority to address the issues. And and this letter that we have in front of us is Paul's set of instructions to Titus. They're Paul's priorities, his desire for the people of Crete. And so this leads us to the main idea of the book, which is not only Paul's desire, but God's desire for flawed, broken, and unholy people to be made beautiful and more Christ-like as they grow in their faith. Imagine a potter taking dirty, flawed clay and molding it into a magnificent vase. That is what God desires for the lives of those who trust in him, no matter who they are or where they are from. We'll see in verse 4 that Paul mentions a common faith between himself, a Jew, and Titus, a Gentile. No one is prohibited from receiving the gospel, no matter their background. And as we come to this book, we, feel, we may feel like we ourselves are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, or maybe we're only too aware of some other flaw in our character. Well, the book of Titus outlines how God moves us from being like Cretans to being like Christ. With this understanding of the book in place, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 1? It's a small book near the end of the New Testament. And we'll read chapter 1 together now. So this is Titus chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may, may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 1 introduces us to the first idea in which believers grow to be more Christ-like. And the focus here is on the truth. And this is in direct contrast to the first part of our description of the Cretans, that they are liars. And I'm going to break the chapter down into three sections this evening. Firstly, the truth transforms looking from verses 1 to 4. Secondly, false teaching distorts this truth from verses 10 to 16. And then finally, elders guard and proclaim the truth, going back to the middle of the chapter in verses 5 to 9. So that's the truth transforms, false teaching distorts this truth, and elders guard and proclaim the truth. So to begin, the truth transforms. The desire for truth is at the very center of the human heart. Whether that's searching for truth about an incident, searching for truth to increase our knowledge on a subject, or simply whether we want to try and find an answer for some of life's big questions, each of us seeks the truth. It is important for us to ask ourselves, where are we getting our truth from? Do we seek it in the media or online? Do we look for it in the world of politics? Or do we delve into the world of philosophy? 
You see, ultimately, everyone is searching somewhere for it. The first four verses of Titus introduce us to the source of real truth. Sometimes when we read Paul's letters, we can overlook the greeting section as merely just a general introduction to the letter. But it's often here where he declares the main basis of his writings, and the book of Titus is no different. Look again with me in verse 1. Paul speaks of the knowledge of the truth, the truth, not a truth. This is the only source of truth. Verse 2, which God who never lies. God in his very nature is truth. And this is in direct contrast to the Cretans who in their nature are liars. Verse 3, and at a proper time manifested in his word. So God is the only source of truth in life. And he has revealed this to us by revealing himself in his word, the Bible. Paul then goes on to explain the impact that this has on the believer. And there are three key words in verse one, faith, knowledge, and godliness. These are the steps that anybody must take to become true believers. First of all, we must have faith in the Lord God to become part of his family. Verse one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. After we have taken this step of faith, we continue by developing a deeper understanding of the truth by studying what God has revealed to us in his word. As verse one continues, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Then strengthening of our knowledge of the truth will lead to godliness. These are the public outworkings that represent the change that has taken place in our hearts. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This is the core aspect of the book that I outlined earlier. There is a clear connection between faith, then the knowledge of the truth, and then godliness. This is in the heart of the true believer. But Paul has recognized a lack of godliness in the people in Crete, those ones who have put their faith in Christ. The bridge between faith and godliness is currently not there. So imagine you're waiting for a train and you're standing on the platform and you know where your destination is going to be. But it's only by getting on the train that you'll end up where you want to go. And the bridge or the vessel that gets us from the platform, which is our faith in the Lord, to our final destination, which is being godly and Christ-like, is knowledge of the truth. That is God's word. And verse two tells us the ultimate hope of all of this, which is eternal life promised to us by God. And this isn't some hope in the sense of it being wishful thinking. Paul is absolutely certain about this hope because it's a promise from God and he cannot lie. You see, Paul had spent the early part of his life 
running after religious prestige and power. He was a Jew brought up to have a deep knowledge of their ways and customs. And ultimately, he was led to a life spent persecuting those who believed in Jesus. But Paul was utterly transformed when the God of all truth was revealed to him. He realized that all of his efforts and works to achieve salvation were in vain. He couldn't make it to heaven on his own. Paul realized that the punishment of sin was paid for by Jesus' death. That was the only true way to find salvation. That is the truth. And despite all of his acts of wickedness against God and his people, God's grace was still offered to him completely, and he recognized his need for repentance. Paul accepted the Lord Jesus as his Lord, grew in the knowledge of truth, and godliness was the result. We have to ask ourselves if we, like Paul, believe that God's word is the truth. Do we believe that he is a faithful and honest father? Do we believe that what God says in his word is better than what is being offered elsewhere? And ultimately, do we trust God? After we have placed our faith in Christ, we need to center our lives around the truths found in God's word so that we are transformed to be more Christ-like. God desires that we are renewed, transformed from sinful, broken people into people who reflect the goodness of the Lord in their character and their actions. So the truth transforms. Secondly, false teaching distorts this truth. Paul has laid out in verses one to four the importance of the truth in the life of a believer. But there's a problem. False teachers are rife within the Cretan church. Verse 10 states, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Paul makes it clear that this isn't a small minority that can simply be ignored. There are many teaching a false gospel. In contrast to the truth, which is the word of God, a God who never lies, that's been manifested to us, this false gospel is empty and without substance. Reference to the circumcision party here in verse 10, and then Jewish myths in verse 14, would suggest that the false teachers were emerging from a group of Jewish Christians who were likely trying to enforce customs and ceremonial laws that were no longer necessary in light of the new covenant that Christ established in his death. Paul makes it very clear in verse 11 that they must be silenced. The reason for silencing is that these false teachers are causing people to stumble in their faith and be led astray from God, and it's simply for the shameful gain of those who teach it. Contrast this to how Paul laid out his teaching mission in the opening of the chapter. Paul is a servant of God, preaching by the command of God our Savior. These teachers are serving a completely different master. 
They are serving themselves. Paul desires and longs for believers to be transformed and made more Christ-like through their knowledge of the truth. These false teachers are happy for families of believers to be collateral damage in the search for their own wealth and status. They have no care for what is right or true. Now, we may not be exposed to false teachers who want to impose Jewish customs on us today, but there are many preaching a false gospel. Maybe some of us have watched on as a celebrity pastor tells their congregation that through large donations to the church, they'll receive their own health and wealth. Or maybe we listen as a preacher tries to lay out a watered-down version of the gospel, one that removes God's righteous justice and centers everything around our 21st century idea of love. But it's not always from the pulpit. Maybe the worldviews or lifestyles of our friends and family are leading us down paths that take us away from God. We need to be mindful to stay faithful to what is true, rooting ourselves in the truth of God's character that has been manifested in his word so we know how to avoid falling in line with the ways of these types of people. At the end of this section, Paul reiterates the significance to all of this. You can sense the anger with which he speaks in these latter verses. Paul himself has been commanded to teach the good news of the transforming power of the truth. And the idea that people are teaching things that are contrary to this enrages him. Listen to the language he uses towards the end of the chapter. Verses 15 and 16 say, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Recently, a member of my family, who I'll show remain nameless, <coughs> Amy, um, was in England. And Amy was looking to make a journey with her friends. It was only after they had sat in their seats and were well on their way that they realized they were going south instead of north. You see, they were at the right platform, and it looked exactly like the train they were meant to take, but it ended up taking them in the other direction. And you see, false teaching has the same effect. Often, when we become believers and have a faith in the Lord, we think we're following what is right, or maybe things can be presented to us in a way that deceives us, but it's ultimately contrary to the truth. And if knowledge of the truth takes us towards godliness, then false teaching takes us far away from that. And Paul describes the destination of false teaching as detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The truth transforms us into being more Christ-like. False teaching creates a distorted gospel and it leads us to being anything but Christ-like. Earlier, we looked at the idea that faith and then knowledge of the truth transforms us towards godliness as our actions reflect the inward change that is taking place in our hearts. On the flip side, those led astray by false teaching deny him by their works. 
If our works are the demonstration of the change that has taken place in our hearts, well then, works that deny the Lord showcase a change in our hearts that leads us far away from God. It's, it's like a plant that is nourished with water, good soil, and nutrients, and it grows and produces good fruit, both to taste and see. But a plant without water or good soil will simply wither up and die, producing no fruit. False teaching has the same effect in our lives. So false teaching distorts this truth. Finally, elders guard and proclaim the truth. So in verses one to four, we've considered the importance of the truth in the life of a believer and how it transforms us to godliness. Then secondly, in verses 10 to 16, we get the contrast and the warning, how false teaching distorts this truth. Here in the center of our chapter, verses five to nine, Paul leads us to his main practical application for Titus while he's in Crete. And that is to appoint elders in the church. See at the end of verse five, Paul commands, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, these are young, newly established Christians, but of course, elders and church leaders are not just the solution for this church in Crete. It's the model for all churches in the New Testament. And Paul explains why in the job description for each elder found in verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give sound instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. If truth leads to godliness, but then false teaching distorts this, then elders are needed so the churches stay faithful to the knowledge of the truth of God. That's their job description. And like a shepherd who must feed his flock correctly so that they will grow and develop, they also must protect them from the threat of wolves that will lead them to death. Elders or overseers are required to do the same. They are both to give instruction and sound doctrine. They must lead the church in the light of God's word, and they're, but they're also to rebuke those who contradict it, as false teachers lead people away from the light of God's word. Referencing back to that story that I mentioned earlier, Amy and her friends only realized that they were going the wrong way when the husband of one of her friends was tracking her phone. He realized that the direction of travel wasn't right and phoned them to tell them the correct way that they needed to go. Elders are to recognize the false gospels that are leading people away from godliness and teach them the truth, almost, if you like, being the train conductors as they lead to hearts that are transformed to be more like Christ. Now, as they go about this task, there are a number of qualifications that Paul outlines for potential elders here in Titus chapter one. And it is important for us to stay true to what he has written in God's word. But it's also important for us to understand the reasoning behind each one of them. Each time Paul uses the word must, 
These are requirements and not something that we can simply pick and choose. Now, the list here isn't exhaustive. Elders showcasing the fruits of the Spirit and being of good, basic Christian character in their own individual lives is a given. Paul is addressing a number of public qualifications that are important for someone who is to be involved in a position of church leadership. Firstly, they are to be above reproach. By no means here is Paul demanding perfection. No man, except for Jesus, who was the Son of Man, has ever been perfect. But elders are expected to have no charge brought against them that could lead the church to be brought into disrepute. And this general standard flows into the rest of the qualifications. Next, they're to be the husband of one wife. Elders are to be men who are faithful to one wife within their marriage. If an elder cannot follow God's instruction for marriage and remain faithful, how then can he lead in light of God's word and remain faithful to the church? His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The Greek word used here, pistos, can also be translated to mean faithful. You see, a father cannot guarantee his child's salvation, but he can ensure that his children are brought up in a knowledge of the Lord and are faithful and respectful to him as a father. A parallel passage to this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 states that a child is to be submissive of their father. How can an elder lead and command respect from the church if he can't manage his own household? Verse 7 states once again the importance for an elder, or in this case the term overseer, to be above reproach. An elder must not be arrogant or quick-tempered a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. These directly oppose the godly characteristics laid out in verse 8. Being hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Each of these is a sign of the godliness that God desires for his believers. If an elder isn't striving for godliness, how can they direct the congregation in these ways? The role of an elder is one of servanthood and not centered around power. Paul reiterates in verse 1 that he is a servant of God. Elders are first and foremost serving the Lord God and his commands, and they do this by serving their congregation, the body of Christ, by seeking to protect them from false teaching and guide them in light of the truth. It's vital for us to recognize the importance that Paul places on elders and the huge responsibility that, we have, that they have sorry, in the realm of God's work here on earth. As believers, do we align with what our elders are declaring on the truth? On a Sunday, what is our attitude when we come to sit under the word of God being preached? Do we submit to the proclamation of the truth that's been directed by the elders in line with the command of Paul in verse 9? 
we need to consider what our hearts are like as we come to listen to the truth each week. And we as believers should also be seeking to uphold them in prayer, asking for God's guidance and clarity as they seek to lead the church in the light of the truth of the gospel. We should be caring for them and respecting them as they carry out this great task. We also should be seeking to share with them our concerns and uncertainties. Do we view them as protectors and proclaimers of the truth? If so, we should be listening to them and seeking their counsel on issues that we face in our daily walk with the Lord. So elders guard and proclaim the truth. So as we conclude, Titus chapter one leaves a challenge for us to recognize the importance of the truth, the word of God who never lies, in our lives as we seek to walk closer to him. To recognize that the truth is found through the Lord God and him alone, and that understanding the truth is our way of being transformed into Christ-like, godly people. We are to be wary and mindful of false teaching that leads us astray from God, upholding our elders in prayer as they seek to lead in line with God's word and rebuke that which is false. So just to close, maybe you are sitting here this evening and you very much relate to the feeling of brokenness and unholiness. And maybe this is obvious to you, but to some of us this might be offensive, but we're actually all like the Cretan people. Maybe when we're under pressure, we might lie, but no, when no one is watching or the secrets of our hearts are revealed, there will always be evil lurking. Each of us is prone to lazy and selfish behavior. But we can all feel the hope of eternal life that Paul mentions in verse two. This same God who never lies promises that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and be made right in his sight. He longs for us to come back to him. He longs for people to put their faith and trust in him, and from there to be transformed and made Christ-like through the truth, which is his word that's manifested to us. Let's just pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word and for how we can read it and understand it and learn more about you and your character. Lord, as we look at this book of Titus, help us to focus our minds on this idea of being transformed to be more Christ-like. Help us to take this knowledge of the truth and nurture it and develop it as we grow closer to you. Help us to seek and strive for godliness so that we can reflect the inward change that you've given through grace and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in our hearts. Help us to focus our minds on it and to have this truth throughout our minds as we read the rest of Titus over the next few weeks. So Lord, lay this on our hearts and be with us now in your name, amen.